0: You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. We encourage you to use this podcast only as a supplement to your regular attendance or membership of a local church that faithfully preaches the gospel. If you're in Birmingham, we would love for you to visit Iron City. See more details at our website, ironcitychurch.org. There is a Christian teaching that honestly still baffles me. It's one I'm still learning. One I have yet to fully understand. And here it is, three simple words. Love your enemy. Love your enemy. I mean, what a surprising command from God. It goes against every natural instinct in us. Love your enemy. Uh, We might love people who do nice things for us. We might love our pets, like, oh, my puppy Wishbone, he's so cute and fluffy, I love him. Parents, you might love your kids, but your enemy, man, God, that's a tall order. In one sense, the command to love your enemy may not sound so surprising in a place like Birmingham, Alabama, a place that may be more familiar with the Bible. We find the command to love your enemy throughout the scriptures. We also find it throughout our city's history. In fact, this Friday, May 19th, is the 60th anniversary of the publication of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail. Uh, Dr. King's nonviolence ethic echoes the ethic of Jesus, the ethic of loving your enemies. Uh, just consider this exhortation from Dr. King himself who said, Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline using only the instruments of love. Love your enemy, man. This is not an ethic confined to Alabama. It's one that's reached the nations, places like South Africa. Uh, We've heard from one man wrongfully imprisoned in Martin Luther King. Here's another quote, this one from Nelson Mandela, who was wrongly imprisoned during apartheid in South Africa. Uh, Upon leaving prison, Mandela said, As I walked out that door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. In a room this size, there's bound to be some of us sitting here imprisoned by bitterness. But God calls us to love our enemies. And that is something we cannot truly do until we understand that God has done it first. Loving your enemies is something you cannot truly do until you understand that God has done it first. Turn to Mark 7. Mark chapter 7. It's on page 791 of those black Bibles around you. And just a heads up, we're looking at a lot of verses tonight. As we prepare to look at those verses, let me just give you our first of two points for tonight. Point number one, God loves your enemies. God loves your enemies. Beloved, are you okay with the fact That God loves people you don't like. Let's look at Mark 7, verses 24 through chapter 8, verse 10. Look with me. Mark 7, verse 24. From there, he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, That is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released. And he spoke plainly. Beloved, just pause. That reminds me. Of the hymn, there is a fountain that we so often sing when this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. But Jesus doesn't want folks to sing just yet. Verse 36, look with me. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done All things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces, left over seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmintua. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. We have what may seem to be three distinct, unconnected stories. Jesus helping this woman, healing this man, feeding these thousands of people. All things we've seen Jesus do before, right? We've seen Jesus help people. Even little people, even children with Jairus' daughter. We've seen him heal people like the paralytic. We've seen him already feed thousands of people in chapter six. But what we haven't seen so much is Jesus helping and healing and feeding those people the Gentiles the ones who are not ethnically Jewish, the ones that if you're a Jew, you naturally don't associate with, you naturally don't like. The Gentiles in your mind would be unclean, a kind of enemy. After all, it's the Romans, a group of Gentiles who are oppressing the Jews at this time. And yet Jesus ministers to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to the nations. Friends, the thread connecting all our stories today is not, that just, is not just that God is loving people, but that he is loving those people. I mean, this would be scandalous if you're a Jew at the time. Imagine one day you found out your best friend loves your worst enemy. How would you respond? Mark is inviting us to think about that today. Uh, He's brought us these three stories. Uh, He's already gotten us ready for them. You'll remember last week Jesus came on the scene uh, saying it's not what's outside you that's unclean. It's not this or that food that's unclean, verse 19 basically says. And you can read more about this in Acts 10. Uh, But Jesus would not simply leave this lesson in the abstract about inanimate objects like food. Jesus didn't just come to talk about or embrace food. He came to embrace people. All kinds of people. Beloved, this is the movement in our text. The last time we were in Mark, we had an object lesson about food that tees up for what this week, really for what really matters this week, people. I mean, this is exactly Jesus' movement in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. Uh, Jesus doesn't come right out with that story. If you read Luke 15, uh, you'll see Jesus first tells a parable about the coin, an object, a lost coin. Then he tells the parable about the lost sheep, an animal. There's a bit more affection for a lamb. Then he tells the story about the lost prodigal son, a child. It's people God cares about most. And Mark is showing us that in God's eyes, it's not just that there are no unclean foods, but that there are also no unclean people. And Mark is showing us that Jesus didn't just come to alter your diet, but to alter how you see people, especially the ones you don't like. Jesus is like, I didn't just come for food, I came for her this Syrophoenician woman. Track with me as I make a couple comments on her story and the stories we just read. In this first story with the woman, uh, we see Jesus in Tyre and Sidon in verse 24. That's modern day Lebanon and Syria. That's why I prayed for Lebanon earlier. And this woman comes to plead on behalf of her daughter. Gotta love God's providence on Mother's Day, how we see the heart of a mother in our text. I didn't plan that, but God did. If you want to hear more about godly mothers, you can head to our website and listen to my sermon on 1 Kings 3. Uh, But let me in this sermon just deal with the obvious difficulty in this text first. It may surprise you to see Jesus calls a woman a dog. That's jarring. And the simplest thing I can think to say to you is that the way you hear this is not how she would have heard it. Friends, put aside what you think for a moment and ask, what does she think? And she doesn't respond like she's offended. She understands Jesus is operating within the social dynamics of his day, and that's what's happening. The context is important to know here. Uh, Dogs were how Gentiles were, were, were referred to, often by Jews. And while the phrase is usually not a compliment, I don't think Jesus uses it to insult the woman. In fact, even the word Jesus uses for dog isn't so much like a stray on the street, but a puppy at home. Uh, But the main thing I think Jesus is doing here is highlighting the tension of our story. It all revolves around the fact that this woman is a Gentile. Mark said clearly in verse 26 that she was a Gentile. There's one note about that. Then he says, she's a Syrophoenician by birth. There's a second detail. Jesus comes on the scene and tells her, hey, what about this thing with Jews and the dogs? And so beloved, already in our passage, we see these three references to the Jew-Gentile distinction. This is the tension. Could this tension be transcended by Jesus? Would he cross this Jew-Gentile line and divide? Well, that's the question he basically puts to the woman. Jesus quotes the proverbial language of the day, the Jew-Gentile constructs of the day to test this woman. In other words, friends, this is a setup. Beloved, Jesus is basically saying to the woman, I came for the children, that is for Israel, the children of God. And you, dear woman, know how society operates. We Jews and Gentiles don't normally mix. What business do you have with me? Friends, yes, the woman's daughter is suffering, but Jesus will not give in to the tyranny of the urgent. I love this about Jesus. He has his purposes even in our desperate moments. Beloved, Jesus isn't just here to be a vending machine for miracles. And so so he puts to the test this woman because he's interested in more than just healing her daughter. He wants to highlight her faith. And boy, does this woman have faith. Jesus, in a witty way, is like, what business do you have with me? And the woman basically says to Jesus, oh, I got a lot of business with you, pal. Because I know how this divided and oppressive society operates, but you are different, and I have faith in you. And I believe that even the crumbs of who you are, the bread of heaven, is enough for me and my daughter in distress, and that you are willing to share yourself with us. So the question isn't whether I'm stealing the children of Israel's bread, but rather the question is, am I right in believing that you, Jesus, are willing to share even a little bit with us Gentiles? Whew. Friends, let me make it plain. This woman passes Jesus' test with flying colors. When Jesus sees this woman's big, beautiful faith, he doesn't reject her. He honors her. There are no unclean people. Beloved, do you see Mark is doubling down on the point Jesus was making Before? In our last sermon, Mark is emphasizing that the way one gains access to God is not by following the rules, especially some man-made rules. No, it's faith in God that matters. And he highlights this point by using the most surprising person as a model of faith. As one commentator said, here a Gentile woman finds acceptance with God through her, through her faith apart from any dependence on the Jewish purity laws. Sisters and brothers, you have to think about how encouraging this story must have been for Mark's readers. Oh, remember, he's writing to Christians in Rome, many of whom were Gentiles, and yet they were reminded by this story that God welcomes me too. And Jews had to be reminded that God welcomes the Gentiles too. And friends, I think we often think that God's heart is as small as ours. And so we resent the thought of God pardoning people we don't like. Love grace for ourselves, but we want justice for others. We want justice for those people. You know the ones. The ones who vote differently than you who look differently than you, who school their children differently than you, who do church differently than you. Beloved, you might be happy for anyone to get God's grace except for those people. And I wonder, who is that group of people for you? And who are you to say that God shouldn't love them? We need to keep going. We saw in verses 31 to 37, a mute and deaf man being healed in the region of the Decapolis, verse 31 says. The Decapolis is where the demon-possessed man, whom Jesus healed in chapter 5, went and told the people, quote, how much Jesus had done for him. He's done so much for me. We're going to sing it soon. He has done all things well. And that's what the people in our text see for themselves. Friends, what we find is that unlike Israel, who had a proud pharisaical attitude that rejected Jesus. Unlike them, unlike Israel, the Gentiles are quite open to Jesus. And so they bring this deaf and mute man to Jesus and Jesus unplugs his ears and lets him speak. Oh, how this miracle confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah, the one the prophets predicted would come for the nations, for all people. And what would Messiah do? Isaiah 35 says that when Messiah comes, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Beloved, Jesus is here. And everything is changing. All that is broken is being fixed. And one day, Jesus will restore all things. Commenting on the restorative aspect of Jesus' miracles, one commentary said this, when When Jesus heals people, such as this deaf man, we tend to view these miracles as interruptions of the natural order. Yet given the promises of the Old Testament, like we just heard in Isaiah, to restore the world to the way it was at the very beginning, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. We are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Jesus' supernatural miracles are a return to the truly natural. Friends, Jesus has come to bring all people back to the truly natural. It is too small a thing for God to save only the Jews or only the Americans or only the people you like. His heart is bigger than that. And so is his table, which brings us to this third story about Jesus feeding the 4,000. Now this isn't just a repeat of the story of the 5,000 that we've already seen. Now this second feeding happens in a Gentile area. These cities in the text, these are not random cities, Mark is a careful editor. He went here. And so we see Jesus feeding folks in a Gentile area. Even this number seven, uh, which we hear a couple of times in this story, may be significant. Uh, you remember in the last feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over. And we talked about that as a rep- representation of Jesus coming to the 12 tribes of Israel. He comes to them first. But in our text tonight, there are seven baskets left over. A seven is often the number of completion in scripture, right? God created the world in six days and on the seventh, he rested. Well, here where there are seven baskets left over, could it be that this number represents that with the Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, God's family is being completed, And they are resting satisfied. Beloved, don't miss how our stories tonight are connected. The Syrophoenician woman earlier in chapter 7, verse 28, asked for the Gentiles to eat the children's crumbs. This miraculous feeding of the 4,000 was the answer to the woman's request. In faith, the Syrophoenician asked, hey, can we Gentiles get some crumbs? What do we see but a little later when Jesus, moved by that big old compassionate art of his, feeds the Gentiles so richly in this feeding of the 4,000. Friends, the Gentiles here didn't just get crumbs, they got a whole meal. Chapter 8, verse 8 says, the people ate and were satisfied. Beloved, God is inviting all kinds of people to his table, including you. Point number one, God loves your enemies. Point number two, God loves you. Point number two, God loves you. Do you understand that? A lot of people who bear the name Christian do not believe that God loves them. And I'm not just saying that, oh, God loves the Gentiles, so he loves you too, because you know most of us here are Gentiles. No, God loves you personally. Do you understand that? Do you believe that? I speak of the importance of understanding and belief because Jesus speaks of it. Look at chapter 8, verse 11 with me. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Our passage begins again with repetition. It's something we've seen before. The Pharisees, the spiritual party poopers of the day, are back on the scene again to argue with Jesus again. And it's amazing. We just saw miracles and satisfaction, and now we are at man's nitpicking. The Pharisees, proud, self-reliant hearts are on display as they try to test God. Now, friends, I don't think the problem is that they ask God for a sign per se. Uh, Heather Edwards, who's that sermon read last night, helped me think through this very helpfully. Uh, asking God for signs is not necessarily wrong, but what is the heart behind your request? Is it to see God's goodness in faith, or to prove that God isn't good in unbelief? In other words, beloved, the Pharisees were not making a good faith request. They, like the people at the crucifixion were saying, well, if you're God do such and such, prove it. God does not honor that kind of heart. He does not honor faithless requests. Friends, do not be deceived into thinking, well, if I just saw God do such and such, then I'd believe in him. The Bible is full of people who saw God do such and such and didn't believe in him. Y'all know Judas saw all of Jesus' miracles, right? Beloved, what Jesus is showing is that faith is so often what comes before the sign as opposed to after. What was it Jesus asked in John 20? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Pharisees do not believe. Jesus. And so he leaves them. He and his disciples get in the boat, go away, but the problem of unbelief is not behind Jesus. It's with him in the boat. And that's because that unbelief is within his disciples' hearts. The text says that the disciples forgot to bring bread with them. Jesus knows they're going to panic about that, so he warns them. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is something you use in baking. My wife Megan bakes. There's often leaven in our home. That's something you use to help dough rise. And you only need a little bit of it because leaven spreads, grows. Uh, but Jesus' disciples, if we have just seen, as we've seen before, do not get what he is talking about. They're like, wait, but Jesus just mentioned leaven. Maybe he's talking about bread. Did you bring the bread? Wait, we don't have any bread. How are we going to get bread? Beloved, do you see the painful irony? The disciples start worrying about how they have no bread when Jesus is with them. The same Jesus who sent them out in chapter 6 with no food yet provided for them. The same Jesus who had miraculously fed 5,000 people. The same Jesus who just fed miraculously 4,000 people. That same Jesus is with them and the disciples still worried about where they would find bread. I mean, Jesus has to be like, you're joking, right? And so Jesus asked the disciples seven questions. He gives them a thorough rebuke as he completely undresses their hearts and exposes their unbelief. But Jesus does not leave the disciples. He doesn't give up on them. We're going to rejoice in that in a moment. But sisters and brothers, first I want to make clear clear to you that you, as a person who comes to church and learns the Bible, are vulnerable to having a hard unbelieving heart. A hard heart is a particular temptation for moral and religious people. For people who are close to the things of God and have learned a lot about God. And a hard heart is a temptation for those of us in that category because we can choose to ignore or, or not believe what we already know. The disciples already knew Jesus could provide bread. It's one thing to not believe if you don't know the truth. It's another to not believe when you do. Friends, be careful that you as a religious person do not grow callous, hard, unbelieving to the truth you already know. Well, yeah, I know Jesus fed 4,000 people, but will he provide for me today? Oh, be careful, And remember that we as disciples can be so close to Jesus that we miss what's right in front of our face. This is what we see in Scripture. Those who are proximate to Jesus, those who are closest to him, the Pharisees in his vicinity, the disciples always with him, they stand in the gravest danger of missing what's right in front of them. One commentator pointed out how we can be in the boat with Jesus, yet so focused on our own concerns that we are blind and deaf to Jesus. And this grieves God's heart. And so we see the disciples anxious about their lack of bread, but Jesus is anxious about their lack of faith. Friends, God is anxious for you to understand that he loves you, that he will provide all you need. If He feeds the birds every day, every day, will He not also provide for you? Jesus is asking His disciples, do you not yet understand that I have and always will provide everything for you, that I love you? Beloved, I know this can all be tough to swallow. Like, why is Jesus being so hard on His disciples? They're only human. But let this show you the depths of Jesus' desire to be known and to be in relationship with the disciples. Beyond this, Jesus exposes the disciples' hearts and teaches them the truth because how can they teach others if they themselves don't believe? These are the guys Jesus is going to start his church with. They have got to understand who he is and how he operates. Otherwise, how could they teach others to do the same? Beloved, without radical, personal, transformation by the gospel of grace, beginning with Jesus' exposure of our own hearts, we as followers of Christ have nothing to convey to others. Our own hearts must be transformed. Our own understanding must be deepened. This will take time, yes, We'll need to learn the same lessons over and over, and Jesus will patiently bear with us. But we cannot follow Christ's lessons faithfully if we do not first understand them. We can't do the basic things God calls us to do, like love our enemies, if we do not first understand that we were once enemies of God. And God loved us. Do you see? Point number one, God loves his enemies, You will not like that, understand that, or practice that until you understand that you were once God's enemy. Like everything going on in point one about God loving his his enemies, that is how he loved you while you were his enemies. He didn't love you after you stopped being his enemies. He loved you while you were his enemy. Romans 5.10. Maybe Paul wrote, this line to the Romans because he knew there were Jews and Gentiles in that Roman church who would struggle to love one another, to practice love across enemy lines. But Romans 5.10 says, while we were at God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So y'all better start loving each other, Roman Christians. Colossians 1. Colossians is another book extolling the mystery of the gospel that God has brought the Gentiles into his kingdom through Christ. Colossians 1 says, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile, there's enemy language, you who were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, God loved you while you were his enemy. Friends, you must understand that there was a time you were no friend of God. He was a friend to you, but you were no friend to him. Now you sinned against him, rebelled against him, You're over here worried that Jesus called a woman a dog when you've called people made in the image of God way worse things in your life. And yet, in love, Jesus came and laid down his life for you. His enemy. Beloved, he loves his enemies. He loves you unto I need you all to see this. We may love our comic books, our Marvel movies, but the gospel is the only story in which the hero dies for the villain. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus took your place. He died the death you deserve for your sins, but he was raised three days later from the grave and now offers forgiveness to all who would leave their sins and trust in him. He is our only hope. He is the world's only hope. And he is the only hope of the people you are tempted to hate. And if you don't understand that God loved you when you were acting like them toward him, you will never love them. At least not as God intended. Beloved, this is why we have the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah could be renamed those people. The book of those people. God is saying, Jonah, you may not you may not love them, but I love them. And so, friend, my exhortation to you who live in segregated Birmingham is to go love your enemy. Because God loves your enemy. Just as he loves you, who so often doubt him, who are so slow to believe his character and his promises. And, friends, I'm just preaching to myself here, just to be clear. I am slow to believe that God loves me and will provide for me. I didn't even think he'd provide this sermon to preach. Truly. I bet Jesus was like, really, Isaac, are you serious? I've provided for you every time you've stood in that pulpit. Sister, brother, he will provide everything you need. He provided everything you needed even while you were his enemy because he loves you just like he loves your enemy. The question is, do you understand that? The good news is Jesus will keep working with you until you do. Let's pray. Father, we see this command to love our enemies and honestly, it feels like a mountain we cannot climb. And so we thank you that you are God who comes down the mountain and you help us. God, make it clear what that should and shouldn't look like. What appropriate boundaries are and are not and help us, Lord, we pray. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.